Let's take our Bibles, can we? Take your journals. Let's continue worshiping, continue having a heart posture and a physical posture of leaning in and pressing into what the Lord would have for us this morning. Take good notes. Say amen. And by the way, I know we have some ameners in here. I went, I was at one of the sessions for the women's conference, and here's what I heard as Kelly was teaching. I'd hear this. Mmm. Or like, mmm. So women, I'm counting on you this morning. Okay? I know you got it in you. Guys, don't let them outdo you. You know, we say this around here a lot that um, it's the word that does the work. First Thessalonians 2.13, my favorite verse in all the Bible. And so your eyes are on the book this morning. I want us to make sure that we are gleaning and learning and hearing and letting the Holy Spirit massage our hearts and lead us and change us. In case you don't know, one of the core values of First Family is suffering. We have eight core values. Suffering's the eighth one. It was added just recently, to be frank with you, several years ago. One of our elders brought this to our attention. I'm so thankful he did. We word it like this, that we value God's counterintuitive maturing process. This is how it looks on our website. You can read more about it there. As you read that, you may be wondering, well, Todd, that's odd to me. I thought the church was about joy and sharing the gospel and getting the word out and we come together for community and all that's true. And so maybe you're thinking, I'm not sure why we would value something that seems to be kind of a downer, like suffering. I mean, that's a core value. Why? Well, the reason is this. Suffering is one of God's primary tools for maturity and mission. It's one of the main ways God brings growth in the Christian and the growth of the church. I could prove this to you from the Bible. I will, hopefully, as we spend some time in it today. Just know that whether you like it or not, suffering comes with the territory of being a Christ follower. It is non-negotiable both for the individual and for the collective body. Now, this should not surprise us. It's expressly taught in the Scriptures. And it's also personified in the head of our body, Christ himself. I'd remind you that Isaiah called him the suffering servant. John identified Jesus as the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world, indicating death. Lambs were sacrificed. Peter preached that it was God's will for Christ to suffer, and he used the word crush. And Jesus even said about himself that his mission was to give his life as a ransom. And so it's clear that suffering is integral to the God-man. It was necessarily integral because his suffering was critical for our salvation. 
This is exactly what Psalm 22 forecasts. The necessity of Christ suffering for our salvation and then the, the sharing that it compels. So turn your Bibles to Psalm 22, would you? We're going to take some time to look at this final psalm of lament. And man, have we worked our way either up the ladder or down the chain, however you want to say it. If you recall, when we began this series eight or nine weeks ago, I think the first two or three psalms we looked at were six verses and eight verses. Then we moved to one with 17. Now we're at 31 verses in this psalm of lament. Good luck, Todd. I'm hearing you. You're exactly right. There is so much here. In fact, I was praying this morning and I had this sense that I may underfeed you today. That's not my goal ever, but um, I think we could spend 31 weeks in this chapter, to be frank with you. It's so vivid and poignant. Uh, but for the sake of our series and for the aim of it, we're, we're going to try to do our best to navigate this psalm in one week. It's loaded with treasures and nuggets. I'll do the best I can. Um, it's just... It's just fabulous. So let's dig in with our forks. Let's eat together for a bit. As you're getting your journals, your Bibles ready, um, a couple of maybe overarching notes about this psalm that will help you. Historically, this psalm has been quoted in the New Testament. In fact, our Lord himself quoted this from his most crucial hour when he was on the cross. It was quoted by the author of Hebrews as well. And yet, when you read this psalm as a whole, it's impossible to find an event in David's life. He's the author. It's impossible to find an event in David's life that corresponds to this psalm. Now, for those who have been here, we may have some guests with us for the first time or maybe the second, third time. If you're tracking with us through this series, you'll remember that we've been able to identify a specific historical moment when most of the Psalms of Lament were written. And we've been able to kind of see how they came out of that and why they were rooted in that. So David's this author, but at least in recorded scripture, we don't have an event that we can tie this Psalm to. So that really begins to speak to its prophetic nature as its primary purpose. You see, Psalm 22 prophetically is, a, is an account of suffering under an execution. It is a description of a crucifixion. However, Jewish people at this point in time had no understanding of that. That wasn't a means of punishment in their culture. This was written a thousand years before Christ. And no actual human way to understand what a crucifixion was in the Jewish culture. And yet David unbelievably gives in some ways more details about the crucifixion of Christ than some of the gospel writers do, writers do who were there at the moment. It's just a beautiful, amazing uh, prophecy that really points to divine inspiration and these infallible proofs. It's a beautiful Psalm. Now, because it is pointed at Christ, we call it a messianic psalm. Say that with me. Messianic psalm. Kind of a $10 word there. Uh, just realize this is really a, a psalm that is written by David. In some ways, it must reflect something he experienced. We don't know where or when. 
But truly, its main emphasis is to point us to Christ. So today, we're going to read David. And we do this every week in the Scriptures, whatever we're reading. We're going to read David, but we're going to see Christ. Amen, church? Here's what you're going to see about Christ. I'll give you three summary words to kind of set the stage for our reading today. Suffering will be the first 21 and a half verses. Then you'll see a a moment or an outburst of salvation in verse 21b, the very end of that verse. And then for the remaining 10 or 11 verses, you'll see a real theme of sharing. So suffering, salvation, and sharing. And here's the best way to see it. It's really two sections in the psalm, and the last part of verse 21 served as a bridge to get us from one to the other. I wouldn't think of it in three sections, but this middle exclamation, this middle outburst is really a bridge from suffering to sharing, and we'll see that it is the salvation of our God. So follow along with me. I'm going to use our lab today. We'll go right there. I'm going to read it from here, verse by verse, along with you. You'll just kind of follow along with me. I'll make a few notes about this. It won't be quite as intensive as some other weeks because I've got a longer section to deal with, but I do want you to track with me. And as we dive into this first section, I want you to be looking for this. You're going to find a throbbing back and forth, kind of a, a, a personal call and response the author's having with himself. And he's going to be doing this. He's going to be kind of expressing his sense of forsakenness And then he'll answer himself with a statement of God's faithfulness. This happens three times in these first 21 or so verses. Watch this unfold for us. He says in verse 1, and you're going to, let me just insert this one more time. You're going to see this in the use of personal pronouns. There's a lot of the first person pronouns in the uh, initial call, we'll call it, about forsakenness. And then he answers himself with second person pronouns. That's how you can kind of distinguish who's speaking, the call and response, the back and forth. Watch this. He begins, verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You begin to see the first person pronouns already. And by the way, this was the phrase Christ used from the cross. He quoted Psalm 22 as a human, as a full man expressing his lament. You can say that Christ's cry from the cross is a New Testament prayer of lament. Let's keep reading. Why are you so far from my deliverance, from my words of groaning? Are you sensing that his sense of forsakenness now really is about himself and his relationship with God? It's really centering in on what he's sensing vertically and personally. I don't think the psalmist here is saying that it's true. He's saying this is what I feel in the moment. And lamenting is often expressing some frustration, some feelings. It's not accusing or blaming, but it is expressing with honesty and transparency what we humanly feel. And so he's saying, my God, I cry by day, but you don't answer by night, yet I have no rest. Again, very personal here. But look how he answers himself. But you are holy. You're enthroned on the praises of Israel. Our ancestors trusted in you. Time number one. They trusted and you rescued them. Time number two. They cried to you and were set free. They trusted in you and were not disgraced. Three strikes and you're in. Are you with me? (laughs) 
Three times he mentions trust, and every time he says, God, you never failed your people. This is the God that answers us when we are in those throes of forsakenness, at least feeling that way. He moves on now in verse 6. As he discusses his sense of forsakenness, now it moves towards those around him. Remember, the first few verses were about how he felt that vertically from God and to himself. Watch this. But I'm a worm I'm, and not a man. I'm scorned by mankind, despised by people. Everyone who sees me mocks me. They sneer at me. They shake their heads at me. Again, very personal here. But he's describing this forsakenness by others who are around him. Here's what they say mockingly to him. Look at verse 8. He relies on the Lord. Let him save him. Let the Lord rescue him since he takes pleasure in him. And of course, we'll underline that for this reason. When's the next time that type of mocking verbiage was used? It was to Christ on the cross. When they said, hey, he, he says he's God. He's the son of God. Let him call the angels. Let him call a prophet. If, if God's your God, see if he can save you now. Very reminiscent of Psalm 22. And yet here David answers with these beautiful words. It was you who brought me out of the womb, making me secure at my mother's breast. In other words, my friends have forsaken me. Others have have run from me, but God, you've never left me. You've never run from me. I was given over to you at birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. So don't be far from me because distress is near and there's no one to help. The implication being only you can. So do you see how he's answering his sense of forsakenness by others with this strong confidence that God is always near? God is always faithful. By the way, I wouldn't take verse 9 or verse 10 as a, teaching that, okay, as long as you're born to a Christian mother, you're good to go. That's what saves you. All David here is, all he's doing here is simply saying, God is faithful. He's near. He's dependable. Does that make sense? He's not speaking here of any kind of salvific nearness. He's simply speaking of God's omnipresence. God is faithful. He's near. He keeps moving now to talk about another sense of forsakenness. Verse 12, he moves now, and I'm going to use this word, he's moving now to more of a formal type of forsakenness, okay? Track with me. In the previous section, the forsakenness was more informal from those around him, kind of like maybe former friends or those who might be acquaintances, but here he's moving to those who actually have the legal right to execute him. He's going to describe some serious moments in which we can call it formal leaders or those who in positions of power and authority could actually do him in. Look what the word says to us here. Verse 12, many bulls surround me. Strong ones of Bashan encircle me. Again, you see these personal pronouns when he's calling to himself about his forsakenness. The bulls of Bashan, by the way, were the ones who were grazing in areas of the land that had extra rich and luscious grass. So they were fiercely stronger, more power. And David here is saying, 
Yes, these, uh, these types of people, these powerful people, they're going to do me in. They open their mouths against me. Here he uses the word lions like they're mauling and roaring against him. He's mentioned bulls before. He says in verse 14, I am poured out like water. All my bones are disjointed. My heart is like wax melting within me. So because of the lions and the bulls, the, the powerful who have forsaken him and are going to do him in, his life is ebbing and wasting away. My strength is dried up like baked clay. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. Do you see all the mys in there? I mean, David here is describing an immense amount of personal forsakenness. In every phrase, you just get the sense like, man, David is at the end. He says that uh, you put me into the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. So he's, re he's referring now to these formal relationships who have forsaken him as dogs, lions, bulls, even as a gang of evildoers. They've closed in on me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones, meaning there was an exposure of a skeletal system. People look and stare at me. They divide my garments among themselves. They cast lots for my clothing. I mean, these are vivid, horrific phrases that describe really a murder, an execution. David's saying here, those who can take that right and do that, They've forsaken me too. I think we would admit that this describes more of Christ's last hours than it does David's. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, this is strong crucifixion language. This is really the section of Psalm 22 that is most messianic. So it's pointing us to see the suffering that Jesus endured on our behalf. Look how David now answers himself, though. He says, but you, Lord, don't be far away. Be near. My strength come quickly to help me. You rescue my life from the sword, my only life from the power of these dogs. Save me from the lion's mouth, from the horns of wild oxen. So David is clearly asking for God to intervene to help. Now, before we falsely apply this to us, let's be clear about who this is referring to. It's referring to Jesus. So let's hear the text within the proper context. This describes what Jesus did for you. I hope your heart is moved and your soul stirred as you read and think about the suffering that Jesus went through to purchase your salvation. And he did that so that when you cry out, as David did in verse 21, save me, he can do what the end of verse 21 says. Look with me. You answered me. Amen, church? Hallelujah. The psalm is expressing now a moment in which God heard the cry of the author, the lament of the author, and answered. And this is a beautiful verse. I, I included here, in this portion, more about uh, some of from verse 21. I really want you to focus on the last three words, which is David's way of saying, in all of my lament, in all of my forsakenness, though I was sure God was faithful, here's what God said in the end. You answered me. Now, I want to address with you what many of your translations 
may say they look a little different. The ESV, I think uh, other translations will say something like this. They take this phrase and they insert it here. And it says something like this, save me from the lion's mouth. You answer me from the horns of wild oxen. Now, it's not a problem with those two, but you may be wondering, why is the CSB different? This sounds a little more exclamatory. This sounds a little more like, okay, something now has happened to the positive, whereas in the other ones, it seems like he's still in the lamenting phase. Would you agree with that? Like he's still asking? Here, it's clear God heard and God moved and God answered. Let me explain this to you in a geeky, nerdy way. In the Hebrew construction of this verse, uh, it is an inclusio, which means there is a verb at the beginning, save, and in this verse, there is a verb at the end, answer. It's very non-typical for Hebrew sentences to ever end in a verb. You just rarely see it. When you do, it's the point of the author to say, the request has been answered. Like there's a definitive action now taking place in response to the first verb. I think this is why the CSB does a really good job here of in their word order. Because it's, this is the turning point in this psalm lament. Travis has told us that all of our laments, they have a turning point. This is it. So in 21 and a half verses of God, hear me, save me. I'm at the very end. I'm being executed. I'm being crucified. I'm being forsaken. The writer here switches the way the Hebrew language works and he puts a verb at the end of a sentence and said, yeah, God heard and he answered me. It's a beautiful picture of God coming to the aid and rescue of his people. Now again, let's stay in context. For David, when would this have happened? It would have happened when he was installed as king. He was running for his life for years. Many times at the point of death, but not in this kind of way. And yet, God was faithful to install David as king of Israel, just as he predicted he would, and just as Samuel anointed him, even back when he was a shepherd boy. When did this happen for the real focus of the text, which is the Messiah, Jesus Christ? It happened at his resurrection. That's when... God raised Jesus from the dead because he endured all of these prophetic elements for us. He was killed. And yet God raised him three days later. So applicationally, we can say to each other with confidence, God will do the same for you. Now, maybe you're hearing me say that. You're thinking, oh, so you're promising me an exit from my tough situation? Are you saying that no matter what, God's going to finally get me out of this mess? I didn't say that. It may be that he'll solve all of your dilemmas in your resurrection as well. Your suffering may actually take your life as it did the man Jesus. Your distress, your persecution, your difficulty may actually cost you your life. But I can promise you this. If you belong to God, it will not have the last word. He will save you. And he will raise you. That's what I love about this psalm. Because its main point is Jesus, who actually died for us in this incredible, horrific suffering, and yet was raised by the Father. We can be confident and sure God will answer us as well. You say, well, Todd, how can we be sure of that? How do we know? How can I know that God will 
Well, even if suffering and persecution, persecution is the worst of me, how do I know that God will hear me? Because all who are Christ will follow in his train, we'll call it. It's a word the Bible uses. In other words, as Christ, so his followers. And if God raised Jesus from the dead, then when you die and Christ returns, he will raise your body as well. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It's the promises of God. He's faithful to do it. So I want to say to you, if you're still trying to figure out how to reconcile yourself to God so you can be on good terms with your maker and you're trying to produce a long list of works, if you're trying to figure out what you're going to do on the day of your death so that you don't go to that other place, whatever you're trying to finagle and negotiate with God, None of it works. Because whatever you give God to try to satisfy his wrath against sin is tainted at its source. Same is true for me. I can give nothing to God to appease his holiness because I am fundamentally unholy. But Jesus Christ is fundamentally holy. And he took my place, suffered in my stead, took my death, and now God declares that all who believe in Jesus and who accept the sacrifice of Christ on their behalf, he will count them as righteous and he will take their death for them. And though their body die, yet they will live eternally with him. He'll give them life in exchange for death. So if you want to be guaranteed, that's the answer I want. Put your faith in Jesus Christ this morning. Trust him alone. Let go of trying to finagle your way, negotiate, trying to climb your way out of the pit through good works. Jesus came into the pit for you and with you. He condescended to our low estate, and he's the only way to be reconciled to God. So I would urge you pastorally and compassionately, let go of all you're trying to do to be right with God and let Jesus and what he did be everything you need to say, God, here's all I stand on. It's the cross of Christ it's just suffering for me. And God will accept that and he'll save you. He will answer you. He'll answer you at the place where your need matters most because your biggest need is not the saving of your body. Your biggest need is the saving of your soul. You deal with that, then if the worst thing happens to your body, God will raise it just like he did Jesus. I urge you, I plead with you, in Christ's name, be reconciled to God through Jesus. You say, Todd, what does that look like? It would sound something like this, right there in your chair, as the Holy Spirit's convicting and drawing you and, and in front of you, making the treasure of Jesus irresistible and beautiful. It would sound something like this, God, I've been trying to work my way to you, I've been trying to bargain with you and negotiate with you. I've been trying to impress you. I got nothing. But God, you sent Jesus to be everything for me in my place. He did this for me. So God, I just take Jesus. And will you accept me because of Jesus? And God, I know he's your son and my savior. Save me through Jesus. And that kind of cry, repenting from sin and trusting in God, man, God hears and responds and he answers and he saves.
from the mouth of the lion, from the horns of the wild oxen. Amen? God will answer you. When that occurs, it's not odd then to see what happens next. The writer of this psalm shows that he finds his response to be unstoppable. Notice how this suffering and this moment of salvation turns into a lifetime of sharing. Let's read together verse 22. Follow along with me. He says, so I will now proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. Underline that phrase there. I will praise you in the assembly. You who fear the Lord, praise him. Another reference to these people that he's uh, proclaiming God's name to. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. All you descendants of Israel, revere him. Here's why. For he's not despised or abhorred the torment of the oppressed. He did not hide his face from him, but listened when he cried to him for help. So I will give praise in the great assembly because of you. I will fulfill my vows before those who fear you. The humble, by the way, speaking there is to those who fear you. is a synonymous term there. They will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord, a synonymous term again, referring to those who are humble, those who fear God, they will praise him. So may your hearts live forever. That's the opposite of what he just described. Do You see how verse uh, 26 is so diametrically in the other corner than what he said. Um, it's the wild oxen, it's the dogs, it's the gangs, it's the bulls. I'm going down. Now he's saying, man, our hearts are going to live forever. It's because of the answer of God. And prophetically, that answer of God is in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, notice something here. As David begins this last section, what you're going to notice is he starts with those who are nearest him. Do you see the words in the text? Brothers and sisters, Israel, descendants of Jacob. He calls them also the great assembly, which I believe is a reference to those who came into Israel but who weren't Jews, but they were still within the confines of that initial tabernacle. You could call it the court of the Gentiles if you were to look at a model of the tabernacle and the temple. He's here explaining those who are closest to him. We may say in some symbolic way, those with an earshot. Like, man, God has answered me. He heard me. And so if you're nearby, just know this. God is amazing. Revere him. Praise him. Look what he's done. But he moves from there to the next circle. He talks about the ends of the earth. So what you're going to see now is an ever-widening circle of worshipers who are coming to God because of his salvation and answer to David and David's compulsion to just talk about it and share it. He says, all the earth will remember in turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations will bow down before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord. Don't you love that phrase? Who owns salvation? King Jesus does. Sounds like Psalm 3 and, and uh, Jonah chapter 2. He's the sole sovereign ruler who saves his people. He rules the nations. And then verse 29 describes it this way. All who prosper on earth will eat and bow down. Those who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Even the one who cannot preserve his life. My personal opinion about these final two verses, or I should say the final verse, 29, is it probably a reference to those who submit to the Lord and bow to the kingship of Jesus, but who don't submit and repent in acknowledgement of his saving uh, grace. Now, we can disagree on that. You may see it differently. No problem. 
I sense a different usage of the words, almost a different ambiance in that verse. Like, hey, by the way, uh, all the nations, there'll be people from every nation, language, tribe, tribe coming to Christ, but even among those who still don't repent, they're going to bow to King Jesus anyway. <laughs> kind of like Philippians 2. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. I look at it like this, and it kind of goes to our class last Wednesday. God will be worshiped. He'll get maximum glory from everyone. Some of it will be in mercy, and some will be in judgment. But make no mistake, who gets the glory at the end? God and God alone. But watch this. It doesn't end there. He moves now to another circle. And he says, their descendants will serve him. The next generation will be told about the Lord. Who's the next generation? He says, they'll come, declare his righteousness, and they'll declare it to a people yet to be born. Don't you love that phrase? Like the author here is saying, God's saving work is so magnificent, so, so uh, compulsive and compelling that when I think about it, when I look what God did when he answered me, I want to tell those who are close to me, I want to tell those who are outside that ring, and I want those who've yet to be born to know how great God is. It's an amazing way to end this lament. And he says, to these ones yet to be born, they will declare what he has done. So there's clearly a, a sharing taking place, wouldn't you agree? A, a, a rippling type of witness is, is occurring as a result of God's magnificent work of answering his people when they were in their distress. Now, here's what I think is going on here. I think we have here prophetically and symbolically. Again, I'm going to stick with the tenor and context of the psalm. I think we have here prophetically and symbolically a clear understanding of how the gospel spreads. It always spreads near to far. I can give you multiple illustrations in Scripture, such as the Philippian jailer. And then there was a church in Philippi. And then they gave to Paul, who was on missionary journeys. But it all started with a lady and the Philippian jailer, near to far. This really is the story of the book of Acts. In fact, I've written in my personal notes in my Bible that these last 10 or 11 verses of Psalm 22, it's like a prophetic summary of Acts in which we see the church going from Jew first. Remember Acts chapter 1 and 2 in the upper room? And then God shows up, gives the Holy Spirit, is evidenced in that moment with the speaking of tongues so that all the other nations who were there at Pentecost could hear the gospel in their language they hear it and they believe and they go back to their nations, their homes, and they share the gospel. And within the book of Acts, you see the gospel going from the Jew first to the Gentile, from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth. You see this right here. It's going from the Israelites all the way to the nations. This is always God's intent for the gospel to spread. And how does it spread? From near to far. As I mold this over the past couple of weeks, I, I just found myself humbled that this kind of culture is being built within First Family. It is only by God's grace. I mean, can we just be frank? There are no experts in this room. 
We're all servants. Jesus is the head of the body. And our job is to obey his orders. His last words in every gospel account and historical account called Acts is to make disciples who make disciples. We don't get to question or vote. We just simply obey. And as God of the last several years has compelled us to think about what that looks like, it has been such a joy to pastor among you and to shepherd you wonderful, beautiful sheep who now see it as normal when people leave to plant the church. When a church who needs help says, can you lend us a hand and and we engage with them and perhaps they are a satellite or a campus or maybe we help them and then that's our role and we're not involved anymore. When we send our own to the far corners of the earth as partners in so many ways when we see small groups multiply, when good friends who are leading small groups split up on purpose so that they can reach more of their neighbors, when people are willing to sacrifice more of their income so that we can give more to our partners, when people who are on the fence decide, hey, you know what, I want to be all in, man. This missions thing is is top-notch at First Family. It's, It's happening. When all those things are happening and God is continuing to fuel the flame of missions among this flock, what I see happening is the gospel is spreading from near to far. I want to thank you for embracing that, for not fighting that, because I know it encroaches upon your comfort zone. It's encroached upon mine. It's hard. It's difficult. It at times seems impossible to let go, whether it's your resources, your relationships, But God's name is to be worshiped among the nations. Every nation, language, tribe, and tongue. My prayer is that as God continues to impress upon us the majesty and beautiful nature of his saving work, that he answered us when we called. We will not do anything but share that news with people both near and far. This really is the context of this closing set of verses. You see that salvation is compelling, even propelling proclamation. It's what's driving it. You see these uh, verses talk about people coming in from the nations, which by implication means there are people going to the nations. So much so that future generations are affected and impacted. This This is a staggering vision of the future that people yet to be born will be told about the works of God. I hope every dad in this room will take this verse to heart and say, my kids are going to tell their kids who will tell their kids about the great works of God and that you'll make that your aim, not the latest traveling team or fashion design or career move, but that your kids will be so impacted by God's saving work that they will tell their kids who will tell their kids that should be our aim, a legacy of gospel expansion. You say, well, Todd, what is it we're telling these people? What is it that we're saying to them? Well, here's the part I get most giddy about. You will love this verse. It's the end of verse 31. Look at it with me. We tell them what he has done. Now, watch this, church. This psalm is a what kind of psalm? Say it with me. 
messianic psalm. It's very prophetic. Its main player is not David, but whom? Christ. So I think the end of this psalm, verse 31, the four words, we're declaring what he has done is like the Old Testament version of Christ's final words on the cross when he said, it is finished. See, that's what we're declaring. I'm not taking a list to the nations. I'm taking news to the nations. I'm not taking boxes to check off. I'm taking proclamation of what has been accomplished. Christ has died. Salvation has been secured. It's done. That's the news we're declaring. That's the legacy that should be set for future generations. As you think about this chapter, now remember, the last few verses of sharing, they go with two other words. Okay, so we're going to kind of summarize now, keep all the elements in mind. There's a suffering element, and there's a salvation element, and there's a sharing element. We'll summarize with these three words. I'll show them to you again on the screen. Suffering, salvation, sharing. Salvation is more the bridge. These two main sections. Often we want the sharing part, don't we? In fact, I can see it on your faces. You were giddy with me about expansion of the gospel, the nations coming to Christ, folks hearing the name of the Lord. But if I said to you, and what if that came about through suffering? You'd say, I'm not sure I'm in, Todd. Trust me, I would have the same response as you. This is not our normal human response. But this is why suffering is a core value here. It is why suffering is taught in Scripture because often it is one of the best platforms for gospel expansion. That in our most distressing moments, God hears and God answers and that becomes the very platform from which we can begin to extol and praise and revere and proclaim and declare the wondrous works of God that He saved us. Now, I want to affirm that David is just the type here. He's not the fulfillment of this. Christ is. And so this psalm, very, this, this psalm, very poetically and strategically and marvelously, it connects Christ's cross, his suffering, to Christ's mission, our sharing. It connects lamenting that season of lament to missional engagement. They don't see a divide between the two. They see them as together. Yes, there's a mourning element. There is a missional element. Both suffering and sharing are connected to our salvation. Christ suffered for us to bring us to God. He now sends us to those still without God to share God's all-sufficient, soul-rescuing work for them, often that task involves and brings about our own suffering. But it is well worth it, church, because they too then hear of Christ's cross, and through that, God saves even more people. Instead of a flow, which I think is correct when you look at the chapter, it's almost like this loop. Christ's suffering leads us to salvation, which we can't help but share, but often that leads to our own suffering, a price, persecution, 
But that very type of persecution and suffering is the very platform God uses to share the gospel, at which point more people hear of God's name and are saved, and it just kind of continues. I know that's not what you were thinking when I talked about sharing, but the chapter stands together, and its main focus is Christ. In the most succinct fashion here at this church, Christ suffered to save, and now, when necessary, we suffer to share that he saves. Don't believe me yet? Here's what Paul said to the Corinthian believers. Though death is at work in us, it's life in you. You should read 2 Corinthians 4 today and ask yourself, is that the price I would pay to see other people come to Christ? I'm willing to embrace death if it means life for you. You see, we should not bemoan or begrudge that in this psalm, suffering and sharing are connected. It is often God's best tool. Let's summarize. Here's the sentence to put in your pocket today. The take-home truth we call it around here week by week. It's this, that lamenters, we know, that in God's economy, and key phrase there, because most of us aren't sure we like this psalm when we see the whole thing together. But in God's economy, they go together. So we know that in God's economy, Christ's cross and Christ's commission, they go together. Suffering is an ally in sharing God's salvation. This is true. Um, was true for Christ. It was true for those disciples. All 11 were martyred. It was true for the early church. I remind you, the church did not expand beyond its borders until God sent persecution in Acts 8. It's true for our church. And to narrow it down to the smallest circle, it's true for you. And it's true for me. I hope I can pray this prayer. I want to pray this prayer. God, use me in whatever way you can to get your word, your message, your name to those who've never heard. But that is a hard prayer to pray. Wouldn't you agree? I'm not going to pretend to be self-righteous and presumptuous or arrogant. It's a hard prayer. I have a friend that I've not seen for years. He prayed that prayer. I was in high school. He was in college. It's Kelly and Allen's pastor. His name's Scott. He prayed that prayer the night before he fell off a cliff and was paralyzed. Now, I know you have a lot of questions about, well, did God push him? Did God ordain that? What are you saying, Todd? That's another discussion. Just know this, that God doesn't waste a single thing in your life. I remember when Scott came back from the hospital, his name was Scott Mitchell, and he talked to our student body. He shared how the night before that accident, he said, God, whatever it takes for me to be the vessel you want me to be, do it to me. You go figure, you can call Scott and talk to him. I'll give you his number. I don't know sometimes if I want to pray that prayer. 
Do you feel that way? Sure you do. We're, we're so human often. And yet that's exactly the kind of prayer it takes for this psalm to settle on us and realize, wow, Christ suffered for me so that God would answer me. That is so compelling that I want to share that, but I realize that will probably mean suffering. But God, if that's your will, if that's what it takes for your name to be known among the nations, I'll endure the suffering. So in light of all that, will you say this with me? It may be hard, but will you try? Together, church, lamenters know that in God's economy, Christ's cross and Christ's commission go together. Suffering is an ally in sharing God's salvation. Let's wrap this up this morning by just doing two things before the Lord. Let's thank God for the cross and his suffering that provided our salvation. And let's ask God for a focus upon his commission. Here's why. In our moments of suffering, we have exponentially more missional opportunities. Uh, better moments to live with the commission of Christ in full view. So I'm praying that all of our lamenting will lead to us being living witnesses of God's life-giving salvation.